Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Mission for Ministry, with a message titled, We Interpret the Bible, Part 1. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Many of you have heard the story of the man who prayed, Lord, show me what I should know today. And then he went to his Bible and he closed his eyes and he opened it at random and put his finger down somewhere on the page. And then he opened his eyes to find out what the Lord wanted to say to him that day. And the words he read were the words, and Judas went out and hanged himself. And somewhat shaken by that, he prayed again and repeated the same formula. And this time his finger found the words, go also and do likewise. Well, in desperation, he tried a third time, and this time his finger rested on the verse that said, and whatever you do, go and do quickly. You know, I've always liked that story, not because of the kind of macabre humor, but especially because that story reflects what's gone horribly wrong with some people's idea of how to do Bible study. The idea of just getting a verse and yanking it out of context and then making it apply to our lives, well, it's what's gone horribly wrong. And here's one example. Several years ago, I was told, and I'm not a basketball fan, but I was told that a certain player in the NBA had shoelaces on his runners that had Philippians 4.13 printed on them. Now, I do like the idea of memorizing scripture and even having certain scriptures readily available to us. You know, my wife and I have Micah 4 verse 5 printed on our wedding rings. But I think what disturbed me about Philippians 4.13 on the laces of an NBA player is that, you know, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What could be wrong about putting that on your shoes? You know, on the one hand, nothing. Let's remember that it is God who strengthens us. Now, of course, I don't know the mind of that athlete. But just in case he was thinking that Philippians 4.13 made him a better basketball player, that he would get those three-point jump shots through him who strengthens him, or he could get a bigger contract through him who strengthens him, or or to be a key part of launching his team into the championship through him who strengthened him. Well, if that's what he was thinking, well, in that case, he's abusing his Bible. We've all heard of abusers, so don't abuse your Bible. I say that because of the way in which I interpret Philippians 4.13, but here someone might protest. Isn't all interpretation simply in the eyes of the beholder? Why shouldn't the basketball player apply that verse in the way he wants to? And for me to apply the verse in the way I want to, why not just live and let live? But I would respond, if that's what we do, why do we need a Bible at all? That is, if anyone can interpret the Bible in the way that they see fit, isn't the Bible then simply a tool to justify what we really want and what we really believe? After all, what's the point of arguing for the inerrancy of the Bible, as I've done in this series, and then after that's all done, everyone can do with the Bible exactly as they see fit. And here's my point about using Philippians 4.13 as an example. The context of the verse, the one that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, it's written by a man who's in prison, and he's awaiting an appearance before Caesar's tribunal in which he's either going to be found innocent and then released or be found guilty and immediately executed. And in that context, just before Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, listen to what he says. He says, I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See, being placed in a Roman prison, that was quite an ordeal. The Romans didn't think it was necessary to care for the basic needs of their prisoners. If there was no family or friends to take care of their clothing or food needs, what was that to the Romans? But Paul has just been visited by a man named Epaphrodites. He's most like a deacon from the church in Philippi, a city in northern Greece. He's traveled a great distance, having been given funds from his home church to care for Paul's needs in prison. Philippians is Paul's thank you note back to that church. And in his thank you note, he wants the church to understand that his imprisonment and undoubtedly the treatment he's undergone, along with the uncertainty that awaits him, that's an ordeal that would have devastated many a man. But, says Paul, I know how to be brought low. That is, I know how to be joyful, thankful, and filled with praise to God when everything's been taken from me. And then he adds, I also know how to abound. That is, when I have more than enough, that also can present its own unique trials. Sometimes people who have more than enough, well, they become proud and arrogant. They throw their weight around and abuse others and live self-centered and self-indulgent lives. Paul said, I also know how to abound. I know how to remain humble and dependent on Christ when I have more than enough. I've learned, he says, how to live faithfully to Jesus in whatever circumstances God in his providence decides should be my lot. And that's where Philippians 4.13 comes in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is, whatever my circumstances, I've learned the secret of never abandoning my trust in Christ, and I'll remain faithful to him come what may. Again, if that's what that basketball player was trying to express, well, God bless him. But if you were trying to express that God will help him play well on the basketball court, he's abusing his Bible. And here's the point I'm trying to make. The interpretation of the Bible is not a free-for-all, in which everyone can get out of the Bible the kinds of things that are meaningful to them. The Bible's not that kind of a book. At the risk of belaboring the point, let me use one more example. Years ago, a friend of a gal in my church came to visit us on a Sunday morning. And after the service was over, the friend said to our church member, Is that what you people have to put up with every Sunday morning? And when asked what she meant, the woman said, well, that detailed explanation of the Bible, to which her friend, our church member, asked, what do you get in your church? And the woman said, well, we get sermons that are like sticky notes of encouragement from God. I thought about that for some time since I was told that story. Using the Bible as sticky notes that you paste in areas that will be God's words of encouragement to you. Notes that say, you can do it. Hang in there and don't give up. Achieve your goals, for God is for you. Who can be against you? Don't let anyone take away your dreams. After all, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you fail, don't be discouraged. Jesus rose from the dead, and you're going to rise with Jesus. You just keep on keeping on. See what's wrong with that approach to Scripture. What's wrong is that it's our goals and our dreams and our efforts and our struggles that are the focus of our lives. See, the Bible, God's word, then becomes a tool or your servant to give you the courage to get what you want. And then wherever you don't get what you want, whenever everything's taken away from you, whenever there's suffering or tragedy or suffocating sorrow that comes your way, 
while we complain. But God, I I thought you were for me. I thought I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I thought that the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. And to that it must be said that those who think this way have never known God. God isn't your servant. Instead, you are meant to be his. The Bible is not the story of you achieving your dreams. It's the story of God and his glory. It's not about you. It's about him. Every day of your life, you ought to marvel that God hasn't treated you as your sins deserve, but out of his glory, he's been merciful to you. So then, what does all this have to do with Bible study? Well, the very first rule of Bible study is to take ourselves out of the picture and to get out of the way and understand the Bible on its own terms. Let the Bible speak for itself rather than impose what you want on the Bible. I was once told by someone, if the Bible doesn't support me in what I believe on this issue, I'm going to leave the Christian faith. And I said, well, why wait? I mean, even if it's not this issue, it's going to be another one. Eventually, in reading the Bible, you're going to find that God doesn't support you on a given issue. I know that this matter of Bible interpretation, you might have expected that I would go through a series of principles that I use in interpreting the Bible. Well, those principles are important, but in the time remaining today, I want to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in Bible interpretation. So where do we start? I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul draws a comparison between the spiritual man and the man of the flesh. See, in that section, he makes a distinction between those who had advanced in their Christian faith and those who are novices or infants in the faith. But in chapter 2, the distinction is between those who don't know Christ and those who do. The natural man or person in chapter 2 is not a novice Christian, but a person who's not a believer. Unbelievers, says Paul, do not have the ability to discern the things that come from God. And we need to ask, why is that? Deuteronomy 11.19 reminds us that we're to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the words of Scripture, to ensure the Bible is being taught to our children and being talked about wherever we are, and at every time of day. The 1119 Fellowship, our monthly partner program, has become an essential contributor to making all the ministries and resources of Back to the Bible Canada possible. Now over 700 strong, the 1119 Fellowship represents donors from across the country committed to the mission and ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt. One 1119 member wrote us to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Newfeld. This is why we became monthly supporters. To become a part of our monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship, or to learn more about the benefits of joining, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Thank you for supporting Bible teaching you can trust. Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
If the natural person does not accept the things from God, we must understand what Paul actually means by accept. And the Greek word is the word dechomai. It means to accept some requested offering willingly and with pleasure. Let me say it again. It means to accept something willingly and with pleasure. Let's put that in terms of the truths that are found in the Bible. The natural person won't receive the benefits that come from the teachings of the Bible with joy. He or she won't understand or grasp why others find such pleasure in these teachings, for they don't strike them that way. There's no pleasure in this. And why? Paul says the reason why is that they're folly to him, foolishness. It doesn't seem to contain any wisdom at all. Indeed, it seems like the opposite. Then notice the next line. Paul says he is not able to understand them. See, at first glance, you might think the natural person is unable to intellectually grasp the teachings of the Bible, but stop for a moment. I know that some of us think that's exactly the case. A non-Christian can't understand the Bible. But experience has told me it's not so. I remember back in my university days taking a course entitled History of the Ancient Near East, and my prof was not a believer, but it didn't take very long for me to find out that he had an excellent grasp of the Old Testament. He was quite articulate in being able to express what the Bible said. See, experience has taught me that some natural persons, persons who aren't saved, actually do understand the Bible. So then is Paul wrong when he says the natural person cannot understand them, that is, the things that come from the Spirit? Well, the answer to our puzzle is to pay attention to the actual words Paul is using. The Greek word to understand, that's the word ginosko, and it doesn't mean to intellectually understand. See, in most of the time when the word is being translated, it's translated as to know rather than to understand. One word studies that the word means to embrace things as they actually are. It implies an experiential intimacy with the truth, an intimacy that often includes the whole of the person, including their emotions. So stop for a moment and consider how different cultures think about knowing. In contemporary Western culture, knowledge is often thought of as theoretical comprehension. We know something in the Western world when we comprehend it and when we can explain it. In the ancient world of the Greeks, knowledge was thought of in philosophical terms. The Greeks thought about the true, the good, the beautiful, and so forth. It was philosophical knowing. But for the Hebrews, knowledge was always both theological and spiritual. For instance, in Genesis, we're told that Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. It's not that the Hebrews were squeamish about talking about sex. Rather, they thought of knowing as a part of intimacy. And so for the Hebrews, knowledge of God and his word has to do with insight into his will. It has to do with obedience, grateful submission to God's revealed will. It was to obey with delight because of a joyous relationship one had in celebrating with the one true God. Now get back to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, when Paul says the natural person is not able to know the thoughts of God, he means that the unbeliever is unable to experience intimacy with the truth of God, an intimacy that includes his whole person, including his emotions. I hope you're hearing what's being said. Paul doesn't deny that an unsaved person is unable to intellectually comprehend the thoughts of the Bible, but the unsaved person is unable to joyously and intimately rejoice with those truths. 
Indeed, those truths will seem like an unwelcome intrusion into his life. And why is that? Well, back in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul wrote, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That is, the very same message is at one time both welcome and at other times rejected as utter foolishness. What then is so offensive or so foolish about the gospel message? Again, the message of 1 Corinthians makes that plain. For instance, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? According to the gospel, God gets credit for everything. You get credit for nothing. And Paul is saying that all reason for human boasting is canceled out in the gospel. All that human beings possess has been given to them by God as a gift out of his grace. We earned nothing. No one can claim ultimate ownership for anything we possess. And furthermore, we contribute nothing to our own salvation. It was all by grace, or I guess we could say it the way Jonathan Edwards once said it. He said, the only thing that I contributed to my own salvation was my own sin, which necessitated Christ dying for me on the cross. See, that kind of message flies into the face of much of our self-assured philosophy of life. People boast in their own accomplishments all the time. It's incredibly humbling and ego-destroying to think that all of this is only possible because God gives it as a gift, something for which we can take no credit, and also something for which we owe God an eternal debt of gratitude. Our desire, our natural desire, is to glory in ourselves and not in God. Do you remember what the serpent said to Eve? He, he promised her that if she sinned against God, she'd be a God in her own right. And since those days, all human beings seek to take glory from God and foolishly give it to themselves. It was Blaise Pascal who wrote that even in those books in which men speak against the vanity of ascribing glory to themselves, in those very books, said Pascal, the author inscribes his own name. <laughs> That's amazing. The Bible message so counters our fundamental human drive that the natural response is outright rejection, even ridicule of the message. Such basic doctrines as, you know, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Faith alone is the only avenue by which forgiveness can be found. See, these doctrines, they force us to delight in God and his power rather than our own. You know, grasping these doctrines deeply shatters our desire for ego satisfaction. You see, on the negative side, the very doctrines that give believers hope also become an incredible stumbling block to the natural man. They hinder that person from coming to Christ. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, we'd constantly seek to subvert the Bible message and make it suit our own likes and desires and make ourselves the center of everything that we do. Of course, we need to learn good Bible study skills. I'm going to speak about that tomorrow. But we'll have no interest in that if it were not the Holy Spirit directing us to glory in God and in his son Jesus and in what has been done for us on the cross. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, we would either reject the Bible entirely or we'd abuse the Bible to build up our own greatness and justify ourselves. Without the Holy Spirit, we'd either reject the Bible or we'd twist the Bible. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Since we seek the crucified life, we openly confess our utter helplessness in applying Bible truth to our lives. 
We're dependent on the Holy Spirit, not to give us a secret revelation, but to tame the frightful, hellish nature of our hearts from being self-serving and self-glorifying to becoming the sons of God who delight in the glory of God. We must at all times confess our sin of pride, non-belief. We need to be filled by the Holy Spirit, and then and only then are we prepared for the revelation. See, the great battle to understand the Bible happens not first in the mind, but in the heart. Once our pride is defeated, only then will we yearn for what God says. Yeah, Bible study skills are to be learned. Yet we must pay attention to what a text in the Bible actually says. We need to understand the grammar of the passage, the content, to understand the historical background, the unity of the whole Bible. There is work to be done in learning Bible study tools. But before that work can begin, the Holy Spirit has to work in our hearts so that we might welcome what we're about to read. We need to have a hunger for the living God, even if that means that we are required to bow in humility before him and to say, not my will, but yours be done. That's an attitudinal change that allows us to be good Bible interpreters. But leave human pride unchallenged, and all Bible study leads to vanity and pride. That's what the Pharisees did. All their Bible study led them to nothing. Let's not be like that. Let's seek God to change our hearts so that we might love his word. Thanks, John. Is there a concern that we spiritualize the Bible too much? We sort of select verses as inspirational slogans? Yeah, it's a great concern. I mean, spiritualization uh, was a part of Middle Ages Christianity and uh, the The Reformation gave rise to sensus plenor, the plain sense of the text. What did the text mean when it was given? What's its plain teaching in context? And that gave us the Reformation. That gave us these great doctrines that we celebrate, justification by faith and and all of these other things that brought people into the kingdom. No, stay away from spiritualizing the text. Take the text as it's written and apply it to yourself. That's the way of life. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Mission for Ministry, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This year has been one of the more challenging years of my lifetime. And I know it has been for many of you. That's why we felt it so important that all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would continue uninterrupted. In fact, we would even add new Bible teaching video programming on YouTube. Your response has been overwhelming. Your prayers, encouragement, and support has sustained this ministry, and we can't thank you enough. As our fiscal year comes to a close, we'd ask you to continue to support. Our target is $325,000, But to help us get there, a group of ministry friends have provided a $75,000 matching gift pledge. That means every dollar you give is matched by another dollar up to $75,000. Thank you for your continued support. If you'd like more information or to send a gift towards the match campaign, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.